look and, and I see him bleeding out of his mouth. He's bleeding out of his leg. This episode of Wildlife Podcast contains adult themes and subjects that may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. cousin of Charles Darwin, Francis Galton, coined the term for one of psychology's most long-standing debates, nature versus nurture, both sides attempting to understand the reasoning behind the complexity of human behavior. Behavioral psychology suggests that through a person's interaction with their environment, their behaviors are acquired through conditioning, and that environmental stimuli is the reasoning behind a person's action. In contrast, Biological psychology believes the impacts on the behavior of a person is based on the biological and genetic predispositions given at birth. And while the influence of either side of this debate are still unclear, two things, however, remain clear. Environment combined with a person's genetic bias can have a profound impact on the mental state and actions of that individual. But what happens when a good person is dealt a bad hand? When the circumstances of a person's upbringing and birth dictate the harmful situation they're in, the only person that can save them is themselves. But can they persevere? Everyone you meet has a story. This is Brian's. Hi, my name is Brian. Um, I'm from Pittsburgh, PA. From the time I was born and even before I was born, my parents, they were two people who really probably were never supposed to be married, really never supposed to have kids. When I was born, I was born into a lot of chaos. I was born into a household where my mom was abused. My dad was abusive in pretty much every way towards my mom, which ended up uh, filtering down to me and my brother, who's five years older than me. You know, as I uh, started to get older and older is uh, four or five years old, you know, that's when I started seeing just uh, physical abuse throughout the home. and. You know, it, it uh, started out a lot of verbal and physical. Then I started noticing, you know, five or six that the arguments started becoming about, you know, my, my, my dad wasn't home. My dad was uh, out all the time. You didn't really know where he was at, what he was doing. He got tired of being confronted by my mom. So at six years old, you know, my dad left the house. And interestingly enough, he left, but he didn't go too far. He, uh, ended up moving into a house about two, three miles away from where my mom lived. They ended up getting divorced and because of custody laws in our state, Pennsylvania, um, the parents had to sit there and share custody. My parents weren't, weren't, were two people who did not have a lot of money. They're, they're the son and daughter, both of uh, Polish and Slovak immigrants. So, you know, they're second generation and as a result, you know, they, they busted their ass hard. Um, but my dad busted his ass hard in the streets and then he had his regular corporate job. And that's kind of where my story really takes off because when, uh, you know, once my mom and dad divorced, you know, my dad pretty much, it was, he could really do whatever he wants. He wasn't confined by, 
uh, you know, a woman who was just trying to have a, a, a dad there for her kids and trying to save her a marriage that she knew was uh, long dead years before it was ended. So really, um, that's kind of when he took off with what he was doing, not just with his job, but more so out in the streets. You know, my dad was a, he was a hustler. He was someone who sold drugs. He had multiple girlfriends. He uh, had multiple cars. He had nice stuff, but he lived in a, you know, three bedroom uh, ranch house because he, he he was all about not getting caught. That was his thing. You know, at, at this point in my life, whenever I'm six, seven and, and on, my dad's only in his, he's in his late forties and he was doing a, you know, drug dealing and hustling since he was in his early twenties. So you can't be a, uh, you can't, you can't do that and be flashy and expect to be out here that long for decades on end doing that. And so, you know, as me and my brother would go over and visit him and as custody got arranged, the start of uh, a lot of the, you know, shitty things that I went through as a child and a teenager started with the custody arrangement. He had to see us every other weekend and he had to see us once a week. And once a week was in the middle of the week on a Wednesday. And it was uh, after school up until 9 p.m. And then he would drop us off. And of course, being over there, you know, at first, uh, you're not seeing too much. You're just there and he's, uh, you know, running out the door and doing this and handing bags off the cars and coming back in. And he's all giddy, but he's kind of keeping everything to himself. And we really don't, don't know what the hell is going on anyway. And, you know, we're sitting there watching TV and, you know, things things are pretty smooth while we're over there the first couple times. But that was the first three weeks we were over there. I mean, that's how short of a period all of this happened. Um, and after about three weeks, you know, his demeanor changed. He got a lot more cold and he got a lot more angrier and kind of more, you're going to do this, you're going to do that. You know, you guys aren't going to sit around and do nothing while you're here. You're going to help me out. And we didn't really know what the hell that entailed. Um, and... You know, my brother, he was someone who was a very academic person. He was very, very good in school. He was uh, in sports. And I think that that was, to be honest, his way of uh, dealing with the things that he saw and an escape for him also from what he didn't want to keep seeing and keep experiencing. Me, on the other hand, I was non-academic. I barely played sports, uh, especially, good, uh, you know, enough to even try out for school teams. So... My brother was in and out of the house, even on those Wednesdays and every other weekend. He was busy with sports, busy with friends, busy with stuff going on. I was still pretty young, so I ended up getting dragged into things. And those things started out as something as simple as, hey, Brian, there's this brown paper bag. You run this out to this car. Make sure you get uh, X amount of dollars. And if you don't get X amount of dollars, sit there and, and, and tell them to hold on and run into me and don't let them leave. And it started out as that. And so, you know, eight, nine, ten years old, I'm sitting there and I'm just kind of doing what my dad wants me to do. And it started out as simply as that. And um, I never questioned what was really going on. Never looked in the bag, never sat there and questioned anything because I was just like, this is what he wants to do. This is what he does, to, you know, in order for me to, you know, not get on his nerves and not piss him off. As I start doing this more and more for him on a more frequent basis, more people start coming around the house. He gets more comfortable. He starts letting me see a little bit more, especially as I get older. Starts, He starts not being so hush-hush with the conversations and 
at this point, you know, I start seeing multiple girlfriends come in and these just aren't customers or friends. I also learn, you know, that he's selling coke, he's selling heroin, he's selling pills, selling a little bit of weed, pretty much whatever you need. My dad had, that was who he was. If you needed it, he had it. So a lot of that translated, you know, you have a eight, nine, 10 year old up against all that and, and involved in all that. It eventually became normalized to me before I did it. It was something that I saw. And when I started doing it, it just felt like this was a natural progression because like I said, you're helping out your people. You're helping out your dad. You're, you're, you know, stopping, like I said, stopping them from being mad. I start seeing certain things, you know, I start seeing at times people wouldn't pay him his money. They would owe him money. So, you know, at first he would bring him into his garage or bring him in his back. And I would watch from the window and he would beat him up. He would threaten him with a knife, threaten him with a gun. He'd have friends come out of the house and threaten him. His friends had kids who were around my age. So their kids become my friends because we spend so much time together while our dads are making money. We end up becoming this little crew in ourselves. And so, you know, they started ending up seeing that we were interested and that we were pretty much hungry because what we were seeing, you see somebody go out and make a deal and you see them coming with a wad of money and you say, well, I want that money. I just want to be able to get what I want instead of have to steal it from the store. So me and a couple of my people who are now friends, this point we're 12, 13 years old and we would sit there and if somebody owed him money, you know, people don't expect uh, the, the kids to be out here you know, coming to collect for you. So we'd have an adult with us. We'd come and collect. We would sit there and carry weapons. You know, eventually one of us found a gun, uh, you know, off the street from one of these associates. And you're able to sit there and make a trade for some drugs for this. Or And, and, and so one of us would always have a gun. It was kind of like a group thing where it's like, if you needed it, it got passed to you. As a 12 year old, and it, 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 it's exciting. As someone who's about to be a teenager, you're like, oh, this is the shit that, that that people like wouldn't even believe you get so good at you learn how to get that money as quick as you can and as we get literally into our teens 13 years old they start fronting us our own product because now you're in middle school now you're in high school people starting to use drugs people starting to try pills people are starting to snort coke on the weekend a little bit and smoke weed and so you know basically whatever was needed you know, uh, we could get because we were supplied by adults who had access to anything and everything. So, you know, we start kind of getting deep into it. And specifically, it was me. It was my friend Jay and another friend named Mike. So there's three of us. And, you know, at this point, we're pretty much our own little crew. You know, my other two friends, they they weren't talkers. They weren't these people who were going to talk with you and and even try to hear you out they you know they were not afraid to shoot they were not afraid to sit there and hurt you they were not afraid to do whatever they needed to do because in their minds the more you were talking and the more you were wasting their time we all knew when we weren't with each other we knew that each other were in some shit but it was never things that we really talked about we were so busy taking calls and going to make this deal and going with this person to collect this money and uh, going to re-up and get more drugs. And we really didn't talk too much because there's definitely a code of the streets. You know, you don't sit there and talk. If you talk too much, if it spreads too much, somebody's going to get caught. Somebody, If they get caught, there's always a chance that they're going to tell the next person in order to save their own ass. And it doesn't matter how close they are to you. Nobody truly trusts each other in, in that life. Even people who you consider close associates, close friends. And so me and my two friends, I mean, we talked more so than a lot of the other 
people who were a little older than us and a little less trustful of each other because we literally were kids who pretty much grew up together and now we're becoming teenagers we're still kids and but we really formed a more of a bond as brothers than just associates so you're going into pittsburgh and we were in an area of pittsburgh um that really wasn't that great of an area we were just sitting there really just hanging out that day and i was uh you know this is at this point i'm 15 years old and at this point i've been doing you know this full time pretty much i mean even when i'm not at my dad's or on a Wednesday or every other weekend, I'm still fielding calls. I'm still making moves. I'm still taking, you know, uh, drugs to places. I'm still making deals. I'm especially as the weekend would approach every weekend, every Friday, Thursday and Friday, really, you know, were the biggest days. And, you know, it was, uh, a weekend where we, we really weren't that busy. So we said, we're just going to walk around hang out. And, you know, my friend, he had cousins that were, that lived down in this, uh, you know, bad part of Pittsburgh. So something that uh, as kids, you don't, you don't really think about fully, but as an adult, I think about a lot more now. So, well, you know, we were at a, his cousin's house and it was me, my two buddies and his cousin's like, oh, you know, go run to the store for me. Grab me some blunts, grab me some snacks, like grab yourself some shit, like get whatever you want uh, for the rest of the day. And, you know, we go to the store and i mean we're sitting there smoking a blunt on the way we're hanging out bullshit and really not giving a damn you know we you know me and my buddy go into the store my other friend jay he uh he stays outside of the store and even at that point uh you know we just going in grabbing our shit talking shit to the people that we knew and you know we we come out and my friend jay's standing at the corner and a car just comes by. It was a black SUV, tinted out windows. And, uh, you know, all, all you just hear is massive bangs. I mean, it was 20, 30 pops. And my first instinct was to just hit the ground because they were coming towards me. I, I didn't think about running. I thought about hit the ground, get low. And, you, you know, you're at a line of fire. That was my first thought. My friend is a couple feet away from me. And he said, and he sits there and hits the ground too. I'm under a bench next to a garbage can. He's sitting there just under the overhang of the entrance. After uh, 20 seconds, you know, you, you you see the tires veer off and boom, the car's gone. You know, and immediately I get up and immediately I look over and my friend is 15, 20 feet away from me on the ground, just hunched over. And I immediately knew, I said they were going after him. And it, and it all clicked in my head at that point. And we, I mean, we run over without even thinking both of us run over to our friend. There's people all around. They run out of the store. Other people run across the street. There's probably 10 people tending to him. But you look and, and I see him bleeding out of his mouth. He's bleeding out of his leg. And I'm just thinking, what the fuck happened? His eyes are still open. He's heavy breathing. He's, he's pretty much hyperventilating. I mean, choking on his own blood. I'm hunched over with eight other people. And we're just screaming to him, stay awake, stay awake, stay awake. And my other friend is just sitting there, just staring at him. And he's not even helping. He's just pretty much in shock. Someone took their shirt off and they saw a, a hole in his chest. And so they put the shirt on the chest. And we thought, okay, like he's, he'll be all right. He is trying to talk. He has blood coming out of his mouth. He's spitting blood everywhere because he's trying to talk. He's choking once again on his own blood. I'm just sitting there lo looking at the situation, looking at my friend 
And, you know, my friend would look at me, he would look at other people and you would see him trying to mouth words. He could never, I mean, he, he, you know, up until he, he never spoke another word again. You see his chest start compressing. I mean, it literally looked like his chest was coming out of his body. You could just tell he's getting worse. And, you know, the sounds he was making, the groans and the moans, that was just as traumatizing as seeing him get shot, was listening after to him trying to just breathe and stay alive. And, you know, the paramedics came. And, I mean, he died within a couple minutes of them getting there. Just just someone dying in front of my face. I was I was just still in so much shock. I've never said less words in my life. You know, I remember his mom coming onto the scene about 20 minutes later and pulling up and she was hysterical. And she grabbed me and she said, she shook me and she said, what happened? What the fuck happened to my son? I remember her looking over and seeing paramedics work on her son. And she literally, uh, you know, ran over and fell on top of the paramedic who fell on top of her son. It was it was honestly one of the saddest things I've seen in my life because she was so hopeless and it's almost like she ran over and her and her brain connected what the hell just happened and she 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 literally couldn't even help herself but to fall over on her son and um I remember her getting up and I remember seeing blood on her face and I remember looking down and seeing blood on you know blood on a little bit of blood on my jeans and on the bottom of my shirt um just from crouching over being close to him and just trying to grab him and figure out what to do next. Police, of course, are there and they call the coroner and the coroner can't come for two hours. And I remember just thinking it's a hot day out. You know, he has to sit there, you know, he has to lay there for two hours. And my friend, I remember him, he left, you know, he left about 45 minutes after this happened and they pronounced him dead. Um, you know, my friend leaves, he's like, I'm going back to the house. I can't deal with this shit. And something in me, I just, I didn't leave. You know, I just, uh, I sat there. I remember sitting on that uh, wall. And I remember saying to myself, don't leave until he gets picked up. Don't leave his mom here to just deal with this shit by herself. You're with her son, like you're responsible. I felt like I completely failed and got caught slipping as a, as a friend. Um, I didn't realize, you know, how traumatic that was until I really started you know looking back on it at that point in my life at 15 years old me and my friend are talking you know um you know my friend who survived the shooting you know we uh we keep handling our business and doing our deals and every time we would pull up to somebody they'd say you know i heard what happened to your friend i'm sorry I, you know I, I know that was your guy i'm so sorry i'm so sorry and you didn't want to hear any of that and especially my other friend did not want to hear any of that i thought it affected me a lot and you know, my other friend who was there with us, he wouldn't say too much. Like I said, he left and went back to, you know, uh, his cousin's house. And I just knew it was weighing on him, though, because every time someone would bring it up, he would get mad. The longer time passes, you know, especially when you're in the streets, like people start talking and people know what happens. You know, somebody knows what happens, even if the public doesn't or the police don't. You know, somebody knows. You know, my friend, he, because he wasn't someone who talked and expressed his feelings, all his anger built up in him. We fast forward to two years later and people are still talking about it. And, oh, you're not going to get back and do anything about it. You know, he, he he's getting egged on. And we later find out that my friend was targeted because um, he ended up shooting somebody a couple of days earlier. And the guy was much older. And that guy's people ended up, well, were the ones that committed, you know, the drive-by. You know, my friend tells me, he says, you know, I'm, I'm so pissed off about this. Like, I can't keep dealing with people talking about this. And you're just saying, like, bro, you know, don't lose your head. Don't sit there and let these people, 
make you do do something you shouldn't do but you can only tell that to someone so many times there's a day that goes by and i don't really talk to my friend then you know i get a call from his mom and she says did you hear about mike i said no and she said he's he's in jail i have the news on and it comes across as a 16 year old arraigned and attempted murder and double murder a pregnant woman and 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 her fiance and i literally say to myself fuck he killed somebody who was pregnant uh you know who was pregnant with child so he technically just killed two people and tried to kill a third one what ended up happening was my friend he uh ran up in somebody's house he turned the lights off he let off about 20 or or so rounds and he was aiming for a guy that he believed was was one of the people that was in that SUV that killed our friend. And he was trying to pretty much avenge something that happened. This guy's pregnant girlfriend or fiance was laying on his lap. So he ended up, so while he, he hit the guy about four times, she also took a couple bullets and she died. And the baby that she was carrying, which was six months old, they ended up passing away also. And the guy who he, he was actually trying to kill was paralyzed from the waist down for the rest of his life you know my friend because of his anger and because of him not dealing with his demons and him not dealing with with what he saw it, it ended up making him you know building a, a monster inside him that literally he couldn't he couldn't suppress and he had to get revenge and you know at that point in my life i was a, uh, you know the one thing i can say about my mom is like i said she she sacrificed a lot um and she, you know, she paid for counseling for me from, you know, my teenage years on after I saw that. But my friend never did any of that. He never went to therapy. He didn't believe in therapy. He thought that was he thought that was stupid. He he didn't talk to nobody. He didn't open up to his girlfriend even. So he ended up, you know, letting his anger boil into revenge. And that really had an effect on me because I was going into, you know, as he's sitting in jail and awaiting trial and I'm going into my senior year of high school. That's September, the second month of school. He uh, he gets sentenced to life in prison. I blame my dad and a, lot, and a lot of people around him for, you know, what my for what happened to my friend. And when my other friend did that, of course I blame my friend, but I also said this is another chain reaction from what these you know older people had us into because they didn't want to do it themselves. And um, so I had a lot of resentment and a lot of anger and. Um, I, I have nothing really to live for. I'm not, you know, if, if something happens to me, if I'm out here and something happens to me, so be it. Because, because everybody that I that I was around and everybody that I loved, and especially every male specifically, pretty much has died on me and or is in jail, and I really have nothing. All, all I want is my diploma because I didn't even think I would graduate high school, but. I know my mom wants to see me walk across the stage. And so I did that for my mom. And, um, you know, that kind of was the start of where of these thoughts in my head that, oh, you can you didn't think you were going to get here. You need to, you know, you need to push on because you don't know what the fuck's up next, but something's up next. So my mom, she 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 was going to me and her were going to one of my cousin's weddings couple states away in the south in North Carolina and I was someone who when I was younger I read a lot of books and I liked reading 
So my mom, for my graduation, she, you know, my mom didn't have a lot of money, but she always would have, would, would, would get me books. And I would never really read them when I was a teenager because I was too busy to read. I wasn't, that, that, that wasn't in the plan. We're taking a drive to North Carolina for my cousin's wedding. And, you know, I started reading two books. And one was about a band I loved, Red Hot Chili Peppers. And the other one was about a music producer I like, Dr. Dre. So I realized that a lot of these people, you know, they had, same circumstances as me and they ended up being something eventually even even after they went through all their shit and i realized oh like it kind of planted a small seed in my head where i said oh okay like if they did this maybe there's some hope for me i ended up going to college and i started reading a little bit more i got dropped out of college it was a really weird time for me because i felt like i was stuck i felt like i knew what i wanted to do but I didn't know how the hell I was going to do it. I didn't know exactly what that was, but I knew I wanted stability. I really, you know, started traveling with my girl. She, she grew up like me. Her parents never could really take her out of town and really show her anything and experiences. So we kind of <laughs> would pour our money together and go to these, you know, go to random amusement parks and road trips and all this shit. And it just like every time I went out of town, I started feeling better and like there was a purpose and there was a motivation and a weight was lifted off my shoulder every time I left Pittsburgh. And at the same time, at 21 years old, I found a therapist after going to six, seven different therapists. And she literally, I mean, she, she, she wasn't a bullshitter. She was in her 30s and she was just telling me like, this is what's going on with you. And, you know, and and you're a self-sabotager i started noticing patterns and i started noticing self-sabotaging and um, and and i started realizing that i was willing to blow up my own life just to have some control of what happened instead of instead of letting somebody else or some event or some experience blow it up for me i literally would say well i'm gonna blow it up first because this is how i cope i didn't realize what ptsd was and I didn't, I, I didn't understand why I would, you know, have nightmares. And I started, I, I started having so much realizations because of this therapist and because of having the time. You know, also at 2021, 20, I, I said, I'm, I'm done selling drugs. I've seen what this does. You know, I'm, I'm so tired of dealing with this shit. Everybody's going to jail. This person got killed. You remember him? He got killed. I mean, it, it was like constant. And I started realizing, dude. You're going to do all this work on yourself and you're still around all these fucking people that are literally horrible for you. And, you know, and at that point, like I said, at 2021, 20, 22, I'm not talking to my dad anymore. You know, I, I cut him off completely and um, I hadn't talked to him for a couple of years. And I mean, it was for the better because I knew he was one of those people. His kids were a dollar sign. How much money could you make for him? How much money did he have to spend on you? And how much money was he losing because he had to pay child support or because he had to buy this for you? My grandma told me something and she literally, this is something that sticks with me. And she, you know, she said, a mistake isn't a mistake if you do not do it again. It's a lesson learned. And I, that's something that I said. I was like, you know, how, how many fucking mistakes are you going to keep making? I mean, when are you going to learn your lesson? And I, 
you know, I, I did start learning my lesson and day by day, I had to convince myself not to do certain things and not to call this person. And, you know, I started fading away from people and really finding myself and, and building me into like a man and a man who could care about other people and also care about himself. I learned that like your mistakes don't even, don't, don't, don't define you. They're really a moment in time. They're representative of an action. They're not even who you are. To be better, I really had to forgive myself. You know, I had to had to forgive myself for what I did to other people and what I did to myself. And I had to acknowledge what I did wrong. I mean, you can't forgive yourself unless you acknowledge what the hell you did at first to <laughs> to feel guilty. And, you know, and I also acknowledged what others did and their role in things. And I had to let a lot of stuff go from the past and a lot of unresolved shit, you know, let it go. Because if you don't, if you don't let it go and you don't find some kind of compromise with yourself and peace within yourself, it's going to eat you up. It's going to consume you and it, and it will fuck up your life. When I would go to the bar even, I would meet these people and they'd be 40, 50 years old and they'd be talking about this mistake that they made and the shit that they did when they were, you know, uh, 20. And that, and they would talk about it all the time. And I just kept thinking to myself, I don't want to be that person. I don't want to be that per this what if this this happened to me and now i'm this and this blaming person and person that's full of guilt and or this person who can't admit that he was wrong i didn't want to be that and i didn't want to lose this stuff that i was building if you or someone you know is currently struggling we implore you to get the help you or your loved one deserves help is available please call the National Drug Helpline at 844-289-0879 or the National Child Abuse Hotline at 800-422-4453. Wildlife Podcast is produced, hosted, and edited by me, Brandon Pennington. Music, sound design, and additional editing by Dan Semen. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. If you'd like to support the show, you can leave us a five-star review on Apple iTunes. And remember to like and subscribe wherever you listen to the podcast. You can also follow us on Instagram and Facebook at at wild period life period podcast to stay up to date on new episodes, bonus content, or to just send a message and say hi. If you or someone you know has a story that you would like to share on the podcast, you can reach out to us directly at wildlifepod1 at gmail.com. That's wildlifepod, the number one, at gmail.com. Hey guys, stick around after this brief sponsor break to hear some cool messages about Brian and his projects, as well as some podcast messages from us. Hey everyone. Thanks for sticking around to the end of the episode. Again, I really want to thank everyone for their support, and I want to thank Brian individually as well. Through this interview process, he's really become a really good friend and, and resource to us here. You guys can go ahead and visit his website at www.dogotouy.com. I will also be linking that in the show notes for you guys to go on and go directly to his site. If you guys are a fan of the podcast, check out his website. Brian does a lot of similar things that we do here on the podcast, just in written form. Lots of interviews with very interesting people.
If you'd like to support our podcast, leave us a five-star review on wherever you're listening to the podcast, Apple iTunes, Spotify. If you guys can also hit the subscribe button as well, um, really helps us out on our end, as well as following us on all social media, Facebook and Instagram. Thank you guys so much for the incredible amount of support that you've shown Dan and I. We really do appreciate it. The next episode will be coming out two weeks from today. Keep up with us on Instagram and Facebook for updates there. And then remember, if you subscribe to our channel on Apple or Spotify, you will be notified when that episode drops. Until next time, guys. Thank you so much.